Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Performance Talks. This week, Steve and I are really pleased to be joined by our good friend Roberto Vavasori. Roberto is based in Granada, where he's currently head of strength and conditioning for the University of Granada volleyball team. Roberto also has a long history of working in tennis and is currently coaching Francesca Jones, who is ranked number 241 on the Women's World Tour. Uh, We spent a lot of time chatting to Rob about working with Francesca and her qualification for the Australian Open and what that looks like in a COVID year. Roberto's also got a lot of experience in other sports, having worked in rowing and in speed skating in China, as well as working in the UK in tennis prior to that. In a further conversation, we have a chat with Roberto about his current PhD studies and his split role as a strength and conditioning coach and rehab specialist. I think this is a great episode with lots of fantastic content and I hope you really enjoy it. As always, please like, rate and subscribe and share our episode with all of your friends on whichever podcast platform you prefer. You can also find us on social media. On Instagram, we are Performance Talks and on Twitter, we're at Perform Talks. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Really happy to uh, speak to you again. Yeah, it's been uh, a really long time, I think, since we kind of all all got together. I remember me and you were up in the cold, cold climate of Chungchun with some of the uh, the short track and long track speed skaters. So it's good to catch up with you. And I guess you're probably in a bit of a sunnier place now over in Spain. So um, first thing we do like, with all of our guests is, is we're going to ask you a little bit about mentors that you've had. So just a bit of time for you to shout out anybody that's really influenced you or, or people that you really respect in the profession. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I really like the question and, uh, you know, from previous episodes, I've heard, you know, a lot of people talking about mentorships and, and mentors and people they really value. So, um, uh, if I have to choose, I, I, I can say, I don't have many. It's not something that you, um, that people come up a lot here in Spain. Uh, so I, I did all my studies here in Spain. So people is not, um, as in the UK or us or Australia, where people just go and look for mentors, but, um, one of the professors I have in, um, um, at the university, um, he was former national volleyball coach, and I went on and take one of the subjects with um, in in the in my bachelor's degree, which I sh- couldn't take. Let's say that the credits were over, I couldn't take the same uh, the same subject. So um, he is now my PhD director. So uh, I've learned a lot from him um, in terms of coaching not much strength conditioning i was i was coming on with him talking about you know a lot of strength conditioning strength conditioning but he's more on the coaching side how to transfer things um really 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 enjoy his subject and then carried on from there um when i was abroad i wasn't in touch with him so much but then when i've been back in spain for a while i decided to you know get on with all the phd and everything so um i could say that he's he's the one (laughs) 
Nice. Um, what's your PhD in? So I, I, I decided to start being late on the PhD. I was a bit like, like, like Steve. I've heard it in, in previous episodes saying that uh, he always wanted to do it. And I guess it was pretty much the same for me. I was thinking, oh, I wanted to do it, I wanted to do it. But then, you know, things started to go on, on, and on. And then I started to, I decided to start in 2019, end of 2019. So I'm, I'm literally starting my second year. And uh, it's all about uh, load monitoring, really. So it's, it's based on volleyball. Um, we have a, a volleyball team that plays nationally, but it's only uh, student athletes. So to be in the team, you need to be a student athlete. But it's not like in the US that you have your own uh, university league. Uh, they play with other teams nationally. Um, so we are trying to see how different variables of competition and being a student athlete is affecting the, um, the uh, load monitoring and athlete response. Really. Nice. Yeah, I think um, you're, you're right. I always say the thing with PhDs is, is lots of different pieces of a jigsaw and they all have to come together at the same time, right? So you have to, you need to have the money to do it. You need to have the time to do it. You need to have the subjects to do it. You need to have the supervisors. And it's just a case of when they, when they all come and then sort of form together. So cool. Um, all right. Tell us a little bit about your background. So obviously, you know, you, you've mentioned you did your studies in Spain. So just fill us in a little bit um, on, on the studies that you've been doing, you know, bachelor's up to PhD, and then where you're sort of working at the minute and where you've been previous to that. Yeah, so I was born in Italy, so I'm Italian, but moved to Spain really young, uh, about five years old. So I did all my schooling and high school or university in Spain. Uh, yeah, my bachelor's degree in sports science and physical education. From there, I went on to doing a master's degree in sports injury prevention and uh, rehab and return to play. After that, I got another master's in strength conditioning. And um, right after that, well, what, when, when I finished uh, my bachelor's, I started working in a tennis academy here in Spain. You know, tennis is quite big here in Spain. And I've always played tennis. I was a semi-pro tennis player when I was younger. And I'm currently as well a qualified tennis coach. So I started working at tennis academy and, and then I decided to make the switch into go and work in the UK. So I started in the UK in one of the LTA um, high performance centers, like Simon, I remember Simon did as well. Uh, so been there for three years, uh, working with young players mainly, uh, up to 18 or so, um, opened the doors for me to get into the LTA a bit more. Um, from there, I went on to work in China, uh, been in different contracts. So if I add them up, it would be like year and a half, working for Chinese teams, uh, started doing like uh, more rehab, rehab and return to sport um, with speed skating, long track speed skating, then did a short contract on short track speed skating. And from there, we all 
transfer to Summer Sports and did um, some time with the uh, Olympic rowing team. And from there, it came up the opportunity to kind of come back home or closer home with a tennis opportunity, which is where I'm working now. I'm working with uh, one pro tennis player, female tennis player from the UK, but she's based in Barcelona. So um, um, at the same time, as I spend time in Barcelona, but then also time here at home in the south of Spain, um, I had uh, the opportunity to get into the, the PhD. And as the PhD is related to volleyball, I took also the role of head of SNC of the uh, university volleyball team. Nice. It's uh, so, so, I mean, quite a lot to unpick there and loads of different sports, but I think it's really, really cool that you, that you've started in tennis and then you've kind of come full circle and you've come back into tennis again. So it's pretty good. Uh, we had, uh, we had a hockey guy, Cax uh, on, on the last episode. So me and him just geeked out about hockey for the whole episode. So I think this is your turn to get one over on me, Si, and you two guys can just talk about tennis and I'll be the first to admit that I know absolutely nothing about tennis whatsoever. So uh, I'll let you guys talk about tennis and I'll just be quiet in the background, I think. Yeah, I think like you said, Rob, I had a similar um, experience working in a tennis academy and then that was before I moved to moved to Canada. Um, really loved it as a sport. How did you mentioned obviously some of the other teams and sports that you've worked in? Um, how do you find the differences between those those sports? And do you think it was a really valuable experience for you moving abroad and, and getting the experience that you got in China and then being able to bring it home? Yeah, well, I, I would say that if if I wouldn't if I wouldn't go and try to you know leave the comfort zone of being here in Spain and move to the UK and then go to China and then move around the world with all the teams, uh, I would I wouldn't be here right now and probably I, I kind of think that I, I wouldn't get as high in the in, in the jobs that I am now, um, but I really found good value on not being in the same sport for your whole career because when I went on to uh, getting the, my first Chinese job I was like oh yeah they, they were asking me what what sports have, have you worked in and I was like well I, I did a little bit in, in volleyball I did a little bit in, in, in football I've worked a lot in tennis I was thinking oh maybe they you know they send me to tennis or or they they get me with with some racket sports which is what would people would think. oh the uh, the innocence of uh, not knowing how the Chinese system works <laughs> yeah so and suddenly they were like oh you know you're gonna work with uh, speed skating I'm like speed skating so um, I'm I pretty much know all the sports because I, I love to watch on TV especially you know the Olympics and everything but I was like speed skating so it's great because you need to start from scratch and whatever you might think of the sport you know just need to to read and 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 uh, need analysis and check, you know, I was checking who are the most famous athletes and uh, where the nicest rings are and who were the last uh, Olympic champions and stuff like that. So yeah, I what I like we, about I think... that is, is that you didn't just go in to speed skating, you went in with the Olympic <laughs> gold medalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was the second funny thing because I, I got uh, 
uh, an audio message from uh, from someone from China, and he was like, "Oh, you're gonna be working with this name. She's our Olympic gold medalist, and you need to rehab her for for the Olympics." And I'm like, "All right, so <laughs> I better don't screw this up." It's so awesome, man. I think like it's really interesting, and and that you know we can joke about that that kind of people going into China and just getting put with, with random teams. And, and we've had it a lot on, on this podcast already, but people get quite upset by that. I think in the first instance, but I think you're absolutely right in that when you have been through those experiences, you look back, they're the things that make you a better coach. I, you know, I did, I went over there to work in hockey, which was my background. And then before I know it, I'm in short track speed skating, which I knew absolutely nothing about. So, yeah, I think, I don't know how you feel, Sai, but though those experiences are, are the making of a coach. I think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we mentioned my background in tennis. Um, and then obviously in Canada, I worked with a variety of different sports, being the, being the token foreigner and in the training center I was in, everyone else wanted to work in, hockey um ice hockey to you and i rob um and i got lumped with everyone else so i worked with everyone from fencers to sprinters to soccer players um which i really enjoyed and then obviously going to china and it being a bit of a luck of the draw situation um i got i my biggest experience was with table tennis and figure skating two sports that i will be honest i wouldn't necessarily have chosen out of the complete roster of teams um but really enjoyed it and actually found a certain crossover between my tennis experience and the table tennis um and then with figure skating just the you know the unique challenge and learning a whole new sport and a new sports culture as well um i found really interesting um but you mentioned there about going in and joining the the team um so that we you know like to kind of get a chat on is how you kind of how you were received by the team and how you got on with the the team and what you um you know what you kind of did to when you first got there in terms of needs analysis and make, building relationships and stuff and i just wondered if you could touch on that a little bit with that speed skating uh, team that you worked with Yeah, sure. I mean, it was it was pretty fast. It was it was a quick process because they were like, "Oh, they need you there now," and I'm like, "What do you mean now?" Yeah, yeah, we need you there in as soon as possible. And you know, they they think it's like a trip to the supermarket, which is not because it's a whole new. You know, you need you need to get visas. You need to get. Uh, I had to get like three or four planes because it wasn't uh, in, in it was in the north of China. And then you go on, on, on Google and just Google the city and you go like, oh, look at this, it's 10 million people. So you think it's going to be like a lot to do and a lot to see. So, so yeah, I jumped on a plane. I'm, I'm always been like that. I just jumped on a plane and I got there and I get to this training center where uh, it was really dark at night. So the next day I'm, I'm walking around and I don't see like anyone uh, that looks like foreign like me. So it was... The whole training center, like almost nobody would speak English. I had a doctor that kind of could speak something, but it wasn't it wasn't great. So uh, I was like, oh, this is gonna be this is gonna be hard. So Matthew would speak something. Uh, so yeah, I tried to 
to blend in as much as I could. The first few days was, was a lot of observation, looking at what they were doing and just trying to give my input as much as, as I could. And it was funny because when, when the opportunity to step in came up, um, yeah, the doctor came to me and said, oh, the coach wants you to do a power session. So I went on and did a, what we think or what we know what power is, and the translation was wrong from, from him. And instead of power, he wanted like strength, like maximum strength sessions. So just imagine myself there doing the coach looking at me saying, what this guy is doing? Who, who have they, who have they, you know, bring in here? He doesn't even know what strength is. Yeah, so you're trying to really do jumps great. and med ball throws. And this guy's thinking that you're yeah. going to be doing like max back squatting. I had the same thing yeah. with, with one of the teams there where I sat down and, and I was told, right, um, we, we have this younger squad. They're quite a development squad. Our intention, and this was, this was 20, 18 this was just before the pyeongchang olympics and they were saying to me then like you've got these athletes who are like 18 19 20 years old and we want them to be competing in 2022 so we want you to focus really on long-term athlete development and and don't worry about the here and now let's let's like really develop these guys so i forge ahead with a with a training plan you know like that and I get pulled in by a, by a coach a couple of weeks in. They're like, "What are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you making these guys work hard?" And I'm like, I, "I'm really confused." They're like, "We've got competitions we need to perform for. Like, they need to be doing this, this, and this." And it's just again one of those like miscommunications and and people. It, it, that's what's so challenging, isn't it? Working out there. Yeah, but then after after that bad situation i was feeling so bad because i said oh this is my way of showing the team and then just you know two hours before they said to me oh you have like 10 days uh to convince the team and the athlete that you can be with them because we're going to be traveling to europe and i was like oh yeah i, I just 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 i'm out <laughs> i'm out but um but then it, it went it went better uh, as I was meant to be there with with her gold medalist in, into the rehab. I really um, I really built up a good relationship with her, so I ended up going with with the team to Europe. But then when I was there, there was another funny story where you know I I was so um, uh, Simon was mentioning about you know you're going to a, a sport and people might get angry about it, but I was really enjoying it because I was learning so much. It was something completely new for me and so I was trying to understand what the on ice training was about because I was in charge of all the uh, pretty much all the uh, yeah, return to play and some part of the strength conditioning but then on ice I, ha I did, had no idea what was going on the coach was Chinese wouldn't speak any word of English assistant coach same thing so I was with my stopwatch checking how, how, how long were they skating, how long they were resting, how long they were doing things, just to kind of, you know, understand more about the sport. And it got to the point that I was thinking that I was kind of a, a spy. Uh, I was spying on the training method, and I would go and tell everyone what they were doing. That, that was another... Uh, Can't yeah, tell anyone the secrets. Can't tell anyone the secrets. No, no, uh, it's under contract, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it wasn't only on ice. There was another another time that where they, they, they told me the athletes would come to me and say, 
oh, you know what? We're going to have this secret special training. And I said, really? But we, we already had two sessions today. You, ne you, ne you never had three sessions in one day. And they're like, yeah, yeah, special, special tonight, eight o'clock. And I, I, I thought it was a joke, but then they did something like, uh, well, it wasn't really special to me, but, um, you know. I, re uh, I remember this story. story. I remember when we were there and and there was this, oh, we're doing our special secret training. And, and basically they were like getting on each other's backs and doing single leg squats or something just completely ridiculous. Man, yeah, you, that was it. That was yeah. it. That's it. I I I just love the funny the funny stories that come out of China, man. There's there everyone's had their own taste of it and and the absolute craziness. But I mean, that was like I was at that facility with you in in Changchun in the north, and that was a, a pretty nice nice facility there. And and yeah, after you left, I felt very much the same thing. You walk around and there's nobody there, and it could be quite tough in depending on where you are. It's crazy, isn't it? The um, like you said, Rob, city of ten million people. You think that's? I mean, that's the size of London, right? You think there's a lot going on, and yet somehow there's these huge, huge cities that really are, are only just developing, and uh, you're kind of out there on your own with not a lot going on. I found I found like the one foreigner bar restaurant that was there and and i swear i became like their best customer and was in there most nights just trying to talk to anyone that could speak english because uh i was out there by myself so um listen let's what i wanted to touch on you you mentioned it earlier in in some of your studies and it was kind of one of the reasons why you got taken on from the olympic team in china is is this kind of mixed role that you have about being an SNC coach, but then also doing a lot in terms of rehab, prehab and, and return to play stuff. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear from you kind of how that looks on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, in tennis where you are now and, and how it's looked in other teams as well. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, I would say something kind of new. So maybe people in, in the, in the U S will struggle to, or, or maybe, I don't know if in Australia, they, they have the role, but it's something that probably grew up more here in Europe, creating this uh, link between the physio and the strength conditioning. Because before when someone was getting injured, it was like, okay, go to the physio. And when the physio released the athlete or the player would go straight into the SNC and there were no, there were no uh, progression into, you know, the return to, to training, return to performance and everything. So I was really, I, I always wanted, apart from thinking, having in my head about the PhD was, you know, go and study physiotherapy. It's always, I always liked it. So I found having this master's linking between the two roles to be like really, really interesting. So, um, here in Spain and uh, uh, now in the UK as well, and most of Europe, there's, there's, you can have, it's literally a role. You can just, you can be the rehabber or the, uh, yeah, return to play specialist. So yeah, on, on a day-to-day -day basis, um, I would say that if you are in a sport team, is, is a great opportunity to, uh, let's say, kind of progress or work more or increase performance in certain athletes because you spend a lot of time one-on-one. So um, you, you get to, to improve a lot on, on, on the athletes. On the 
injury side, but also on the on 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 general general uh, general strength, power, whatever you might you might think of. So um, yeah, it's a lot of day to day one to one basis where you I don't know just just spend time working on uh, improving the 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 uh, injury they might have. Just just let's go with examples that makes it easier. So when I was with um, in China with the Olympic gold medalist, it was it was working on her knee. Um, she had chondromalacia hepatitis, so it was trying to make her able to uh, to get back to sports. So so you end up working a lot of on the knee, but as well on you know core and the other leg power and upper body if they need it. And uh, and I find there's also a lot of kind of psychology on you know pulling the athlete back because when they feel that they are improving and getting better, they want to just go straight into skating. Oh, let's go skating, and then you you need to um, you need to pull them back. And I find it. I mean, right now in tennis uh, with, with my role, uh, my my player had a lot of issues and injuries. So at the moment, is working on SNC, but at the same time taking care of avoiding or or doing a reduction on on injuries, like an injury reduction. So I would just pick where the main areas of of just get the sports main injured areas, but also have previous injuries and try to to make as strong as possible to to avoid um, you know relapses pretty much. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. To um, it kind of comes into that needs analysis, doesn't it? Of you know taking that that injury analysis part of looking at you know, A, what's common in the sport and then B, what's common with your athlete. And and if you can work it so that they are not put in maybe the positions that they have been previously, whether that's an overtraining issue, whether it's um, biomechanically, they're, they're, they're not, you know, they, they maybe they're predisposed to being injured. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting. I think I also just jumped in because Simon was going to ask a question. So I'll shut up and let him ask a question. Now. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I was just going to um, pick up on that. Like you said, Rob, about how common it is in Europe for coaches to kind of cross that boundary a little bit more and for there to be a bigger kind of gray area, say, between a physio and, a, and an S&C coach. Um, I, I think it's a really valuable skill set to have. Um, like, you know, similar experience to you when I was with figure skating, a lot of my time actually was spent one-on-one -on -one dealing with athletes, um, not, not necessarily serious injuries, but a lot of niggles, a lot of, you know, one of our guys was 36 and going to his fifth Olympic games. And, you know, by that point, he's got a ton of different issues and, you know, other ones, you know, one of, one of my, primary athletes was when I started with her was just coming back from ankle surgery and I was you know taking over from their physio team and sort of building her back up and like you said there's a lot of one-on-one -on -one, but having the confidence and the skill set to go in and do that really gives you a greater scope of practice within the team and then when anyone's in a session and they have a niggle or they have something you're able to help them out and kind of deal with it there and then rather than have to just you know, refer them off. And I think, you know, Steve, you and I had a lot of discussions about this in our role in China about how, you know, certain 
certain places, certain people were coming in with a very narrow, well-defined skill set, but they struggled when they hit that gray area. Um, and I just found it really valuable to be a bit more comfortable in that gray zone. Yeah, what, what I like the most, I would say, is, is the time you spent and, and when you work in closely with physios. I think if I have to choose best moments that I've had along my career is, is the time I spend next to a physio working together because bridging the gap will help. You know, we, we're talking the same language here. And, and then you are kind of next to them when they do the treatment and then uh, you move on to the gym and they'll give you help as well because uh, you, you can really tell them, okay, we need to do this with this group of athletes and you can trust that they, they can do the job as well. And it's, it's, it's been great. That's what in my first role in China, I really missed that so much because I couldn't speak to the, um, to the, uh, to the physios of, of the team. And to be honest, there, were, there, was, there wasn't a real physio there, but in later roles in um, short track and rowing, I did have physios with me and that's been unbelievable. Unbelievable time. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you bring up because I was fortunate last year to work with an incredible physio. I don't know if he's my favorite. I, I mean, I class you as Spanish anyway, Rob. So I don't know if he was my favorite Spanish person to work with or you, but I'll give you the benefit of the doubt because you're on the pod at the minute. Um, but he's an incredible physio. And, and I think that we had such a great working relationship because I was really interested in what he was doing with the physio stuff and he would uh he spent you know at least half of his treatment time on the gym floor where where he was going you know from from sort of working on a couch all the way up to getting guys back into to sort of being fully functional in the gym and being able to to bounce ideas off each other and stuff is is really really important and what I was going to ask is this idea of, I think, unfortunately, for a lot of strength coaches, we, a lot of people don't really understand kind of the the, the limitations or, or the scope of practice sometimes. You'll go into a team and they're like, oh, you're the strength coach. Okay, great. Talk, you know, plan the nutrition. Right? Well, I'm a strength coach. I'm not a nutritionist. Um, and in the same way, it's kind of, oh, you're a strength coach. Great. Go and do rehab with these guys. You're like, well, I'm not really a rehab guy. And I'm interested how, how you feel about that. Obviously, you have very specific training, um, did a master's kind of to that end. And, and I think that how do you think that sits? And what's been your experience of seeing strength coaches who try and do a bit of rehab versus people who are kind of specifically trained in that area? Yeah. Um, first of all, I I'm not your favorite Spanish, but I can be your favorite Italian. So uh, I'm happy with that. So you can tick that box. Uh, yeah. In my experience, what I see is people who had no experience or knowledge into more rehab prehab um, exercise or session, uh, they struggle pretty much. Uh, it's it's kind of a different concept. So it's not, I would say it's not just about overprotecting the, uh, the athlete, which is something that I see too often right now. You go and, and some, some players or athletes, they, they would do just prehab stuff and they forget about the SNC. So 
um, it should be, in my opinion, it should be linked. But it's true that to be able to create good prehab or rehab programs, uh, you need to kind of read a lot and have get get that knowledge. It's not it's not so easy. I don't know if I'm um, if I'm making myself clear, but it's true that a lot of people try to okay, you need to do the rehab, and they have no idea or experience, uh, and they kind of get into making quite a lot of mistakes so my, my point on that would be just go and read get experience you don't need to go into into do a master's really if you want to it's great i just i just did it because i find it i find it interesting into developing those skills but um but that's that to, in my opinion that's the way to go just get reading uh get some experience just try things out but it's not easy from the beginning so just be patient yeah, I think you. I think you're right there, Rob. Like it's it brings up this idea of sort of specialist versus generalist, and strength and conditioning coaches and performance coaches, whatever you want to be called, are typically seen as like the the expert generalist, right? Like we get a lot of different things thrown at us, and I do think it's really important for people to understand not so much their scope of practice, but their own their own skill set and their own boundaries. And that's, they're the things that you can try and develop. If it's a, if it's a field of interest for you, for example, um, you know, one of the things I was implementing with the, with the coaches at my last job was a, a self-evaluation piece that actually helps people understand where their skill sets are, where their strengths are, and then where their um where they've got room for growth and development and that's not necessarily that's not a negative thing it's an area to be able to say hey look actually this isn't a strength of mine by identifying that i actually am more confident in my decision to refer you out because i don't know but i've i've been through an analysis and i understand where my own strengths are and if it's something that you do want to work on then you can take that time to either do a you know, do another degree, do a course, do, you know, do some reading on your own. Um, I think that's actually one of the, one of the great skills. If you've, you know, you've done a master's degree or something like that, you know how to do the reading yourself. You don't necessarily have to go and study again to still have that same level of understanding. But um, I think the, the self-analysis piece, I think is really important to that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, what's really interesting is like you said, we're almost sort of specialist generalists it's it's a really weird thing you go into an as an snc and all of a sudden people just expect you to be a sports scientist they expect you to be a rehab guy they expect you to be a nutritionist and they're all very very different areas and, and scopes of practice and you don't just know about them all and i think um it's absolutely fine if you want to be a strength coach who is just a strength coach i think sometimes the the industry puts so much pressure on us to be oh you have to learn how to code with r you've got to learn how to do this that and the other and you're just like i just want to get into a gym and make make my athletes like super strong super powerful hey there's nothing wrong with that I've had a load of conversations with coaches recently and uh, generally about sports science because I'm, you know, talking about PhD stuff and, and loading and that. And, and every one of them sort of says to me, oh, I'm not really a science guy. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not my strength. I'm, I'm much better with guys in the gym. 
And I just think that's fine. Don't don't apologize for that. You don't have to be. Um, I I am a strength coach who really really likes science, but you know don't you don't want me looking after your team's nutrition. I can tell you that. So uh, I think it, like you say, it's just a really interesting area of a being aware of your of your strengths and weaknesses. If you're self aware, you can then choose if you want to do something about that or not, and be confident and be comfortable with what you are. And that you know, I, I think that would be my a, a bit of a message to sort of younger coaches is is be comfortable with who you are and what you're doing before you start worrying about doing other stuff. Yeah, I mean, Steve, I, I agree completely. I've I've been listening to a few um, to a few other podcasts and also reading about, and I've heard this term of you know vertical learning versus horizontal learning and what they're trying to say is like vertical learning means like you just go into one topic and just develop that let's say i want to be a strength coach who is a strength specialist so you just focus on developing strength and power so these people would go just learning only about that and on the contrary if you are more horizontal you would go like okay i i know about I tried to learn about strength conditioning. I learned about, about sports science. I learned about uh, injury prevention. I go in to learn about some nutrition here and there. I found great to be more horizontal, I would say, because I found myself in that area where I had to be a sports scientist. I had to be strength conditioning coach at the same time, rehab coach at the same time, and do all the uh, data analysis at the same time. Because, well, we've, we've been there and, and you know, you might end up having more than one role. But it's true what you said, that you need to find your boundaries and know what you know and what you don't, and don't step over other people or other people's job. For example, I wouldn't go and do a treatment to an athlete, not knowing, or, or, or jump into the, into the physio room and say, oh, you're doing that wrong, or uh, the issue is not in the hip, is in the, in the knee, here and there. So especially with nutrition, it's true that they try to, a lot of athletes come to me and say, hey, Rob, what do you think we need? To, uh, what, what do I need to eat? I'm eating here and there. So what I'm trying to say is, okay, I have little knowledge about this. I can give you a few ideas, but you should go and refer to nutritionists for this, or you should go and refer to the physio, to the doctor here and there. I love that distinction between the vertical and horizontal learning. I think that's a really clear way of, of describing it. Um, I'm definitely more of the, the horizontal, I think, um, in, in my kind of scope and, and learning. But you guys are both doing PhDs. And surely that's the pinnacle of the vertical idea that you're, you guys have both chosen a specialist area that you're now working on. How does that fit in with the idea of, of breadth? Or are you guys now just focusing in on a sort of more specialist area? Uh, that's great. First of all, this, this vertical horizontal discussion, I'd never heard that phrase, those phrases before. And I really, really like that. I guess to answer that question for, for me personally, I almost want to think about like a bell curve. I'm a bell curve kind of guy. Probably that's a heart back to my stats background, but I want to have a, a great vertical knowledge in in like what I want. So for me, strength and conditioning, I, I want to be that guy who's who's on the gym floor and, and prescribing exercises and coaching athletes. 
that's where my kind of peak of that bell curve wants to be for me personally. I then want a very, very good vertical knowledge of a couple of things either side of being a strength coach right things that are are strongly related so sports science is going to be one of those um probably something like some kind of rehab return to play is gonna it's gonna be there as well so i would consider myself as a strength coach first and foremost and then with some pretty good expertise in in return to play and in sports science and then as i go kind of further out from that uh, from that role, it's going to get a little bit, you know, lower down and lower down. And, and as I go, and I've got sort of psychology are really far down on one end, and and nutrition really far down on the other end. Um, obviously, you're going to bring up a bell curve. You you would with your stats. <laughs> um, how does that relate with actually the idea that when you graduate, I think you you end up with younger coaches being more like the inverted bell curve where people come out feeling like they know everything. And then as you work through your career, you realize as you, as you're exposed to more, you realize how little, you know, and then you kind of come out of it, the other end, building your experience and your knowledge back up the other side of that um, inverted bell curve. Yeah, I think that's it's that Dunning-Kruger effect, isn't it? And and I think maybe Mike Boyle was talking about that again recently. Um, yeah, and, I, and I've been there and done it and I've seen it through students that I've taught through the university. I came out, you know, undergrad in, in sport and physical education and I had my CSCS and I just thought I knew everything there was to know about strength and conditioning. Uh, and, and like you say, if you're able to critically reflect and and if you're open to that sort of reflection and and self-learning you do very quickly realize that there's so much that you that you don't know about and that's where you drop into that uh you know like you said that sort of almost the the inverse bell curve and, and you start trying to claw your way out the other side of it and and it's very difficult to avoid that I think as young coaches you know I I say I see that a lot with the students that I teach they all of a sudden because they've learnt a huge chunk more than they knew before all of a sudden they think they know everything yeah I've got the feeling that every SNC coach I speak to is is kind of like that when when you come out of uni like oh I know everything and maybe your programs are too dense a lot you want to you the way to you have to show that you know is just putting in a lot of stuff giving a lot of feedback and it's funny i i wrote i i, I read this on on i think it was twitter the other day it's like uh, as year goes on i speak less on 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 you know in the gym and everything it's like oh that's true i every time i give less and less feedback and i try to give it at the right time instead of just talking and talking and talking and talking and with the uh with my session programming if i go back yeah 10 12 years ago it would be like loads and loads of stuff which i always say that i'm happy looking back and see the difference from what i do now because so it's, it's a way that that you can see evolution in you uh so i'm so happy that i look back and look oh, what crazy things i used to do and i'm not, I'm not doing it anymore 
Yeah, I agree 100% on that. And I think that's that's another skill that I try and instill to young coaches, to, to students, is that ability to go back and reflect and look at what you've done. And, and I'm the same. If I, you know, when I was first kind of coaching and you'd look at your six weeks that you've got planned out and, and every single week, you're thinking, right, well, we did deadlifts last week. We can't do them again this week because the athlete's going to get bored. And and actually, that totally changed for me when I started working with pro athletes in that they have enough stress. I think I said this the other day. I can't remember if it was on a podcast or to somebody else, but they have enough stress in their life. They have media. They have financial things to worry about. They have their own you know, contracts and things to worry about. They don't want the stress of, of not knowing they want the, the, those sessions, those gym sessions to be safe places where they can come in, they can do what they need to do. They don't want you breathing down their neck and giving them, you know, 15 different coaching cues all the time. And I think you're right. For me, I coach, coach less. I talk less if that's possible. Cause I know I talk a lot. Um, and I, I do less exercises. My exercise selection is drastically reduced. Yep. Yep. Same here. I'm, I'm happy you, you brought up the, uh, the example of changing exercises and, and drills every single week. I was the same. And, and I still get young students coming up to me, like interns that I have here um, at the university teams. And they would say to me like, Oh, why, why, why we don't change? They, they will get bored. I need to change. I need to change. I need to change. And I, I just give you these examples like, okay, my tennis player, every single day warm up is hitting down the middle, hit cross call 400 to 400, hit cross call back and to back end, few volleys, few smash, some serves, and then the session starts. And with the volleyball, they would go do the general warm up and they would just go and spike, receive, set, spike, receive, set, spike, receive, set, and so on. So it's like, do you think that if you do the same exercise for a few weeks, they're going to get bored when they've been doing the same warm-up for the whole life? I don't think so. That is such a good point that I've never thought about before. But you're right. When you watch pro athletes, the vast majority of them are bordering on OCD of doing the same thing all the time. And when you think about it in that context, that there's no way they're going to get bored and come in and say, oh, my God, we're doing deadlifts for the fifth time this month. <laughs> yeah, you are. Well, it's a huge part of skill master, isn't it, is the, the repetition and, and the ability to be able to do it and do it under pressure and do it in all sorts of different environments. Um, the one thing I wanted to bring up was actually I heard a really good description of this on a, on another podcast. And I apologize to the guys who uh, who said it because I can't remember who it was. Um, but he was talking about the idea that it's a really important part of like your long term athlete development process is the exposure to all these different exercises when you're young. Because then you have the toolbox later on where exactly like you said, Steve, the athletes are going into a safe, comfortable environment where they know that they're able to do all of these things. And when you 
you can repeat, you can use deadlifts all the time. If you're still getting gains from that, that's perfect, right? You want to keep the program as simple as possible and, and really target the things you need to develop. But when you stop or when your athlete picks up an injury or a niggle, if they've been exposed to more things and you know that their technique is great on more things when they're younger, you can then pick an alternative really quickly and easily. And, and that's how you can, you can, you know, expose athletes to a great variety. But then when they're older, you're just getting more and more drilled into the things that really matter and, and have a bit more regularity and routine to what you're doing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Um, I've got another example. I don't know if you if you heard it, guys. So um, when working with my tennis player lately, um, what I love with her is uh, we're very open. And if, if we need to say something, we, we just set that up in the beginning. Like we, when we started working, it's like, OK, uh, if, I, I would love to hear feedback from you. And and what there was two occasions that made me change a lot into the way of uh, programming or thinking or or setting exercise and it was um so every every day we would go through a kind of prehab program for her for her hips knees and shoulders and i was trying to every maybe three to four weeks to kind of evolve the exercises and it was true that it was getting way too complex so she came to me and said, hey, Roberto, we, I think you're overcomplicating things. Why don't we go back and do the basic stuff? Like if it's for the hip, we, we want to do abduction, extension, flexion here and there, but just, just go simple. I think you're going too much. So I, I went like, so I reassessed and I, that was a great evaluation for me and say, yeah, she's right. She's right. I'm just going too much. And on the other side, she was saying to me, uh, She's a weird tennis player, I would say. Most of the tennis players like to do things that are similar to tennis, and she's the other way around. She's, she wants to do basic. If you tell her to squat, she's so happy. If you tell her to do a deadlift, she's happy with that. So um, I was trying to kind of please the player and the coach at the same time. So I was putting in a lot of like shadow shots and a lot of med ball side throwing, and she was like, hey, Rob, you know what? I spent four hours doing this motion, four hours every day. I don't want to do it anymore. I, I, I just don't think it's useful. I, I spend enough time doing it. Can we just change it? So, and I, I said, again, to myself, again, re-evaluation uh, of, of, of my planning. So I, I know what you guys think about that, if, 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 you, if it's often happened to you or not. Honestly, mate, it sounds like you're living the dream because I think everyone's used to the complete opposite where coaches in particular are they want things that look like their sport because that's what they know and so i think like you know kind of like you said you're trying to put things in that you you're sort of projecting and thinking that the coach wants to see or perhaps what the athlete wants to see and actually the athletes turn into you going no no like this is you know I want to do things different from what I'm doing on the tennis court because I do so much of it. And I think that's really important. Like I, I've spent most of my time having the complete opposite conversation of, Hey, actually we're trying to do, um, we're trying to support your technical training by doing some of the things that are missing. 
and we're trying to help you know do the do the opposite to help keep you balanced or you know or whatever it is so i think you're you know quite honestly living the dream there yeah i agree with that it's um it's so refreshing it must be so refreshing to have that i i was just having this conversation with someone yesterday about skating and there's so much out there of you know either coaches or or athletes wanting you to mimic the skating stride without that deeper kind of understanding of okay but what is a reverse lunge gonna do to help us escape us doing a reverse lunge in the gym is going to be so much more beneficial than replicating the thing that you do 10,000 times every single day on the ice um yeah absolutely living the the dream i think with that one um we let's talk about tennis because i'm interested to get into that so i i don't know much about how you're how you're working in with that athlete is it just the one athlete how did you kind of get involved in tennis um and and tell us a little bit because again i i sort of sort of saw on the news i know obviously your athletes taking part in the australian open and there was some covid kind of uh quarantine things going on there so just talk to us a little bit about how you've got into tennis and how you're finding it yeah well Tennis, I started playing when I was six or so, and I went to play on like very well uh, up to, yeah, 17, 18, when I was uh, playing like semi-pro tennis, I would say. I was starting playing the lowest pro-level tennis tournaments. But then I, I see that, you know, the talent wasn't there. So I said, I'm going to try to help, you know, athletes into get where I, where I couldn't. So... From there, I always been involved in tennis. I my first job was in tennis, and then I went on working on the LTA. So when I was in my last contract in China, I got a call from the LTA because they knew me from from the time I was in the UK, uh, and they knew that I was mostly based in Spain. I wasn't at that point, but they said, "Oh, listen, there's this uh, British tennis player. Is uh, under the wing of the LTA, but." Um, she's based in Spain and she's looking for a strength conditioning coach. So with tennis is not a, a club or a federation hiring you it's the actual player hiring you. So your boss is the player. Uh, so that's a tricky part. It's not what people used to. So, because you need to kind of please your boss and who's paying you, which is normal, but at the same time is the one that you were training. So, um, when, when that opportunity came up, I said, oh, I love tennis. I play tennis. It's, it's, it's a great opportunity. And um, so I, I did take it. When, when I started with her, she was 17. And uh, she was around 500 in the world or so. And she's now up to 241. Um, with, with the lockdown, it's been a great opportunity for us, I would say. I mean, it might sound sad because the situation is, is not nice, but for us, we had like three months on working on, on, on building a strong base for her, which were, we were not able. And with the schedule that tennis has is, is, is almost impossible. And, um, and as the year was going on, she, um, she managed to, um, to get enough ranking to go into Australian open qualifiers. 
and she went through the three rounds and now she's in Australia. Uh, the tournament starts in about two weeks, but you know, with the quarantine, as you said, uh, only one staff or qualifier isn't allowed to go. So the tennis coach is there with her. Uh, she's been lucky because the um, few planes that went over there, uh, there were a few cases of COVID. So they've been in like, they call it like hard quarantine, like two weeks in the hotel room. Um, but for her, it's been different. Her plane was, was okay. She landed there and she's allowed of uh, five hours per day to uh, leave the room, uh, go to the training center, two hours for tennis, 90 minutes of strength conditioning, uh, some nutrition and uh, treatment, and then back to the room. That's it. That's incredible, Rob. Uh, um, like you said, the the ability to be able to get that kind of time, like three months, like you said, um, is incredible in tennis. I remember when I was working out of one of the LTA centers in the UK and we'd go to the national center for um, like the national um, coaches um, education days. And Matt Little um, was talking about his training with Andy Murray and he was saying how with the season being so packed as it is, the compromise they came to was small three-week training blocks where they would focus on, you know, physical development and S&C over technical development. And, you know, you being able to get three months is like unheard of in for a tennis player. Yeah. And on top of that, I think we had, almost seven weeks pre-season, seven, which normally you get like three or four. So that's been great. But, you know, I, I just wanted to say for people that is not used to tennis, uh, a lot of strength conditioning coaches, they don't want to work in tennis for the reason I'm going to say. And it is like, you know, in, in hockey, you know pretty much when you're going to play, even with the hard schedule that Steve had of, back-to-back -back games and travel here and travel there but pretty much you know where you're going to be except from playoffs because you don't know if you're going to qualify or not but with tennis is you get to a tournament and you don't know if your player is going to lose in the first round or she's going to make final so a lot of people come to me and say how do you maintain during tournaments i'm like okay if, if she loses in the first round we're going to have like five days of work where we can kind of yeah maintain uh, but if she gets to the final and the weeks after gets to semi-final and the week after with the traveling, uh, she plays a third tournament. It's going to be like three weeks of literally no strength work, no speed work, no except for what she gets on court. So um, it's, it's tricky on the side of week to week. We normally tend to not do more than three weeks in a row of tournament. And then after that, we'll do two training weeks where you kind of try to uh, rebuild again but sometimes that's not even possible so people say I'm going to do the whole year periodization that's impossible because like for us now she suddenly after three weeks out she qualifies for Australian Open qualifiers you're not going to say no to that and then she suddenly qualifies and then she goes in to play a better tournament and, and so on and on and on so it's just it's just be very flexible or, or have a program where you can be very adaptable Example is what we tend to do when we're in tournament, we have a game day minus one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So if I have, if I lose first round and there's five days to the next tournament, 
I'll do training minus five and then minus four, then it's three and so on. But if I keep winning, I keep doing minus one, minus one, minus one, minus one, minus one, and so on. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to, to tell people that not into tennis, how hard it is for planning. That I'm glad, oh, go on Si, what are you gonna say? No, I was just gonna say, I saw your eyes light up when uh, when Roberto said about the uh, the years you know the full periodization and sticking to that rigidly i just saw the uh the grin on your face was brilliant it's the biggest myth in strength and conditioning it's periodization like i don't know who bumper was kidding what yeah i'm obviously tongue-in-cheek but but you're right i'm glad you you explained that rob because i was actually going to ask the question because i don't know anything about tennis and i was gonna kind of ask what does it look like for you as a strength coach in the middle of a tournament? You know, like I'm used to a, to a heavy schedule where our athletes work out on the day of a game. They work out the day before a game, they work out the day after a game. Like that's just hockey players, you know, they're a different animal to, to certain people. But um, yeah, I think you kind of answered that pretty well. And, and like you said, it's, it's one of those, like, you don't learn this in school. You're only going to learn it once you get on the job of, of how to be flexible with your approach to periodization. And, and, you know, you need plan A, B, C, D and, and all of the rest of them. So I think that's some really, really interesting uh, info there. Yeah. I, I will, I will also say that on top of the craziness of um, not knowing when, when you can train or not, I'm not saying that during the tournament, we don't do training. We do when we can. And obviously you want the player to win. So I'm happy when we cannot do strength work or speed work or plyometrics or whatever. Um, but it's also, yeah, hard to, to adapt. And on top of that, to some, now that she's getting high rankings and going to, you know, she's going to play uh, top WTA tournaments and Grand Slams, you know that you're going to have equipment uh, on site uh, but when you are in lower tournaments where you begin you might end up not having anything to work with so on that minus one two three four days I also have option a b c being c having a full gym b hotel gym that we know that sometimes is all right sometimes it's like really bad and then option c is like not having only only the equipment that um Sorry, on, only the equipment that you can take with you, which is bands and stuff like that. So with the periodization, I always use the, the term that, yeah, do it ahead of time, but do it in pencil so you can erase and write again. Yeah, it's yeah, such, a, such a good point. And, and I laugh because um, even like last year, in, you we go away and you, you're in different rinks and sometimes you get the good gyms and sometimes you get bad gyms. and um, sometimes you get hotel gyms and, and I would kill to be working one-on-one -on -one with an athlete in a hotel gym rather than working with 26 guys and trying to get them through, through a hotel gym workout. So, uh, yeah, listen, I wanted to touch on something else that we spoke a little bit about off air and that's VBT. Um, I would say that none of us probably claim to be experts in VBT, but I know Rob, you, uh, did a pretty nice YouTube talk on it. Um, we've all used it in different settings. Um, I, I commented the other day, I think it was on, it was on social media and, and I think Jim aware got a little bit annoyed with me because um, 
of of how I kind of commented, but I wasn't meaning it in in a bad way. But essentially, what I what I said was, I love the idea of VBT. I understand the science behind VBT, but when you're working in a gym with twenty six guys, it isn't particularly practical or I haven't found a way where it's practical to implement so um, I just wanted to kind of get your guys take on it because I know that you've both both used it more kind of in individual settings yeah um, yeah I, I remember to see your um, you commented on Twitter and, and I mean it's true what you say with big groups is hard because I, I feel that unless you have like at least if you have 20 players and you have at least 10 devices with their own tablets telling you the information, uh, that might work, but still is hard. And then you need to educate the athletes and, and they need to understand the whys and, and how and what you use it for. So for me, using it with just one player is unbelievable, but you can, you can know. And I know um, Simon has been using it with, with um, figure uh, skating with little groups as well so um i love the idea as you do i think probably it's something that is not uh, they don't teach at university yet uh as a way of you know monitoring or controlling the load uh or a way to know how the athlete is is ready to perform uh but there's still that big issue of of Big groups, as you said. What What do you think, Simon? What What's your experience with your speed, uh, well, I, figure skaters? Um, no, I completely agreed. I I found with small groups of you know two, maybe three athletes, it's you know it's manageable. But you're still having to, if you've only got one device, you're having to switch athlete profiles back and forth. Um, you know, you're either you're having to reset the the equipment or switch you know if you're using something like a, a push band they're having to you know swap devices back and forth um the the big thing though that i think that you commented on is the the education and and teaching the athletes why you're doing it and how how it's going to benefit them and how different it is to what they've been doing before that's also a lot easier when you're one-on-one -on -one or in a small group you can explain it really easily. You can teach it as you go. When you have a really big group, that takes up a huge amount of your training time, right? Like Steve, for you and your guys, your you know a lot of your sessions were after a match, right? After a game, and you're trying to get the guys through a workout, you know, fairly quickly. Are you going to spend loads of time trying to educate the guys on? on that and getting everything set up i think there are some great pieces of equipment out there like one of the gyms in in china had invested in the um the motion capture device with the um you know the camera on the rack and it tracks the barbell instead of a wearable device or um or anything like that they're a really great setup for a group or team because you know the guys can just step into the rack and they've they've each got a tablet on the rack and everything but the investment for that is huge and you still then have that barrier of athlete education, you know, and being able to explain it thoroughly and make sure that everyone understands what they're, you know, what they're doing, why they're doing it, how to program it, you know, all of that. I think the, you know, that education piece is really key and one of the hardest things about implementing it in a group. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, 
I, I did try to bring it into some of the stuff we were doing in, in pre-season when we were down in Shenzhen. Um, and, and I was sort of saying to the guys, listen, this isn't uh, like a competition. It, it's about tracking and monitoring. Blah, and, and straight away, they're like, but it is a competition. I'm like, it's not a test, guys. This isn't a test. Oh, but it is a test, isn't it? It's like, no, I'm not trying to trick you. I just, you know, let's just kind of... And it became more of a distraction to the session than anything else. And I had a little bit of success, I would say, using it with scratch players. Again, like when you've got small groups and we were we were really lucky that we had four gym awares um, and we had four racks. So if I'm doing a scratch workout and I've only got six guys, okay, it's actually a bit more manageable to use then. But but like you say, I love the idea and, and I I think it, it can be it can be great. But I think that um, to expect everyone, you know, to, that that's kind of one of the tools. It's it's a tool, but it's probably not one going to be one you get out too much. That competition element is uh, is great to pick up on because it's that's a double edged sword, right? You know, on the one hand, it drives intent and it drives um, the effort, and you kind of want almost a bit of that competitive element to drive the guys to really push themselves but you don't want them to see it as necessarily a competition every time. Oh yeah. I had guys yeah. doing um, like trap bar squats, squat jumps with this huge, big, like shoulder shrug at the end of it, because they figured out that they were getting higher scores when they're doing that. And you're just like, we're just, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing here. So, so for me, certainly I've, I've tried it and uh love the idea of it but still waiting to find a better way to use it yeah don't don't you guys also find that a lot of times when with with technology uh the coach ends up forgetting about the session so they they are setting up here they checking the speed on the other side they're checking the, the other thing on here he's filming the video of the others and then you you you're losing track of of the session so I, I just want to say to maybe, you know, younger, younger coaches not to get too involved with technology. I know it looks fancy, but just use it for what it is. But don't forget that you are managing a group of athletes and you, uh, you, you want to follow the, the program you've planned for them and not just being there setting up stuff and, and, and forget about them. Absolutely, mate. It's the, um, you know, it's the new version of the, the sort of clipboard and stopwatch coach right who just stands in the middle blowing a whistle and timing everything you know that's kind of an uh, seen as an old-fashioned approach we've gone a lot further into developing you know what everyone calls the art of coaching and the soft skills and and actually being more hands-on and building those relationships and technology is now kind of a massive distraction on the side that's drawing a lot of people away from that and I think it's really important, like you said, to really hone those skills and make sure that you're still present and you're still delivering the actual coaching part of your job and you're delivering that because that, that's really what matters. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. I think, like you say, our, um, our stopwatch and our, and our clipboard have just got a lot fancier. But I mean, I, I don't want to start another conversation too much here, but we could go down this route of being in education and, and seeing the, the how students have no 
um, attention span and they can't focus on what they're doing for too long. And, and I almost think it we kind of breeds into that. Like everybody just wants something fancy. They want something shiny. And, and I saw a clip the other day of uh, somebody was using, uh, you know, one of these softwares where your, your workout is on your phone and it was just a photo of, of 16 guys in the gym and every single one of them is looking down at their phone. And you just think, come on, we've, we've come so far and yet we haven't actually come on at all or, or even worse, we, we've stepped backwards. So listen, guys, we're going to have to wrap it up. I think um, Roberto, just before we go, we always kind of ask guys uh, for sort of social media or, or how's the best way for anyone to get in contact with you if they want to, to reach out. Yeah, I'm on social media on, on Twitter is at R Vavasori, which is my surname. Um, I'm on Instagram, not as you guys. I do post some things of, on strength conditioning. It's pretty much strength conditioning. You won't see tats or tattoos this time. Uh, and it is uh, Roberto Vavasori 87. So my name is surname 87. And also on, on uh, LinkedIn. So if anyone wants to reach out there, I'm happy to help. Awesome stuff. I'll um, I'll put all those links into the into the social media in case people can't spell your surname because I always get it wrong and and don't put enough s's in it. So, good stuff. Um, right, it's been awesome catching up with you. It's been far too long for us. I think we need to, you know, next time you're in the UK and we're not in lockdown anymore, we need to get together uh, in person. So, absolutely brilliant to have you on, Rob. Awesome. Thanks for coming yeah, on the show. Thanks Rob. a lot, guys. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah, next time in the UK, we'll let you know. And hopefully maybe Simon will be around. Who knows? But yeah, thanks again. Really appreciate it.